Okay, apparently we are recording. Not then, but now. So, do I have study guides? The answer is yes. Of course. Would I be here without study guides? Um, for tonight and then the next one? Or what, what else? Because I know I've sent you something, but I don't know what. So, which one do you want? I did. But I will repeat to pretty much everybody, me emailing it doesn't mean you got it. And I get that. So you've got them. Yeah, you've got them. Okay? All right. And then I'll, I'll tonight at the end give you the rest of the study guides. So back to that question. Do you have questions? Any words that you've worked up that you struggled with or anything that you want to focus on in these sections? I could not find the word maintain. Yeah, that's because that was a typo. But I am glad that you that you looked. But it is not in verse twenty-five. Oh, verse twenty-eight. Yeah. Can I tell you exactly what happened with that? By the way, I was writing it without my reading glasses, and five looked like eight. Okay. Sorry. Okay. Any others? On which study guide? I'm sorry. One sixteen to three twenty. It's at the top. Okay. So question eight is Paul pro circumcision or anti circumcision? Okay. Well, thank you. these down, by the way, so I'll have them next week if we don't get to them this week. Any others? <laughs> okay, let's go ahead and start with chapter 2-1, and by starting with chapter 2-1, first thing it says is, therefore... So what's therefore referred to? What happened before? Excellent generalization. But can we bring up a little more specific? What did happen before? I was kind of hoping somebody had already. God, 
those who practice such things are worthy of death. They not only do the same, but give hearty approval to those who practice them. So what he's going to do in Romans, you're going to see, he, he goes back and forth between those who know the, ordinances, know the ordinances and those who don't. Gentile, Jew. And he's going to include both of them and wrap them all up into, they have to have faith. And, and, and the ordinances are? The law. The, the law. Not the, not the, the ten. The law. The whole, the whole thing. The whole law. Yeah. The whole thing. And, of course, he's going to say later in a very often quoted verse, if you send in one, you're guilty of the whole. So if you're a lawbreaker, you're a lawbreaker, right? And there's only one punishment. Yeah. Yeah. There's perfect and there's sinner. I'm a perfect sinner. Well, we'll, we'll just, you know, move right on. Therefore, you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment. For in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. Now remember what he just said. He's talking about people who know the ordinance, but don't do it and then kind of encourage others the same way. So right now he's talking to who? Who knows the ordinances? Pharisees definitely... The Jews. They're the people to whom God gave the law. The Roman church is made up both of Jews and Gentiles. Okay? And apparently a fair number of both. Because he refers frequently to both. And and again, just kind of wrapping his arms around everybody. Because the bottom line, or lines, if you will, of this letter apply to both. It's not like there's a whole different standard for Gentiles than Jews. And that's what he's laying out here the whole way. So, for the Jews, they have a tendency to judge others. Who are the others, by the way? Everybody else. Yeah. The, all, the, the word Gentile basically was everybody but me, if I'm a Jew. So, all the others. But, we also have read enough, even recently in the study on the parables, that the Pharisees particularly, and not just the Pharisees, but any Jew who really felt he was doing well in the law, had a tendency then to look at others and look down on them and think, you know, I'm doing better than you, therefore you aren't so hot, you need to get in gear, etc., etc. Paul says, no. If you're judging another, you condemn yourself because you you who judge practice the same things. It may not be exactly the same sin, but again, sin is sin. And that's, that's a concept that as Christians we've been exposed to that a lot. I can't tell, say how many times I've talked about the fact, I'm a sinner, I'm no better than anybody else. And I mean that. There's, there's a lot of sins I haven't committed. <laughs> there's sins some of you have done that I've never done. But I have a feeling, if we were to really make a catalog, that there's some on my list you haven't done. So, to the Pharisees, it was almost a game, <clears throat> and the Jews in general tended to play it, of focusing on the ones you've done, and yeah, we'll sort of ignore the ones that I've done. And, of course, we've all got our lists of which ones are worse. There's sins that are worse than others. In our head. Not in God's head. I mean, the, the Scripture is very clear that on an eternal basis, that's just not true. Okay. 
But do you suppose this, though, man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Again, very important word. What's, what's the word repentance? Okay. Changing the mind. Now, the, the turning away is another word that is often, well, it is sometimes translated epistrephal, but by far metanoia. And we, we looked at that in a previous one. Um, so there's sometimes I'm going to keep bringing you back, even if it's not on the study guide, to a word just to remind you of it because it's that important. And obviously repentance for the Christian is extraordinarily important, right? So we need to keep that in mind. And the, the kindness of God leads you to repentance. But because of your stubborn or stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Revelation means exactly what it sounds like, to reveal. So the judgment of God is known, but it's not. There's not any person in this room who really understands and sees that. Because God has never done what he will do in the final judgment. It is... It is uh, literally cataclysmic, but cataclysmic is used for so many other things that it just doesn't capture the, the enormity of the condemnation and destruction literally of everything because this is all part of the curse and it's all going away. So the judgment of God is going to be revealed, okay, and it's going to be righteous, and it's going to be in wrath. What's the word wrath? Okay? But I was kind of hoping for the Greek word. Okay. Or gay, or for those of you who are in the Greek class, or ye, or, or gay, depending on which pronunciation system. Remember, any word we ask you to pronounce from the Greek New Testament, there is pretty much no way you can mispronounce it. Because we have zero idea how they pronounced words 2,000 years ago. No one has any clue. So I'm going to be very confident in how I pronounce it because I was taught to use modern Greek pronunciation. And so how I pronounce it is how the Greeks pronounce it today, which is pretty much guaranteed not what they did 2,000 years ago. Okay? And we get that. So, or ye. What does that sound like? It sounds like orgy. It does, which is no coincidence because that's exactly where it came from. And when we think of orgy, what do we think of? Sex. Okay. Uh, what kind of sex? Okay. Maybe group sex, sex party. Uh, may I say uh, illicit sex, sinful sex. Okay. We're not talking about that which is good between a man and a husband, or a husband and a wife. We're talking about sin. This word does not mean that. You understand why we, we call it that. It means an explosion of passion beyond control. Majority of the time it's used in the New Testament, what passion is being discussed? God. Well, that's whose? In this context, what passion is being discussed? Anger. And that is the, the majority use of the word. So we 
twisted it and taken this idea of the explosion of it beyond control and applied it to parties. Okay? But, uh, and it could mean that, because it can mean any passion. But the majority of the time it was used, it was about anger. And whenever you see it in the New Testament, I guarantee you, it's not what we think of orgy. It's uh, almost exclusively anger. And now we're talking about righteous explosion of passion, because it's God. And you see this picture of judgment that it, it really boggles the imagination. Because we're going to hear this, see this amazing power. We're going to see the wrath, the anger that's been stored up. But it's not our anger. It's not selfish. It's not, I'm, I'm ticked off at you because you bothered me or hurt me or put me off. It is based in righteousness. And it's the only anger that is, according to James. And it's being stored up. Now that's a good thing. Why is it a good thing? Yeah, because if it wasn't being stored up, it'd be poured out all the time, and we wouldn't be here. So he's storing it up. And what happens is that storing of it doesn't, it's not for us, boy, we've just built up such an amazing thing that when we see God, he's just going to let loose and we're cut. No. It's very clear that he forgives and he gets rid of that. But if someone doesn't come to him, remember we're talking the unrepentant here, that's never gotten rid of. This is something that's one of the biggest theological arguments going on in the American church today. Is this real? And there's an amazingly strong movement to convince people it's not. But the fact of the matter is there is nothing in Scripture that is more solid than the judgment of God. I don't like it. Many would say, well, but you can't have perfect love and, and judgment. Well, yes, you can. You can't have it in human terms. Because we're not perfect. But God is. And that perfect righteousness is not in conflict with perfect love. That's why he became flesh. To give us a way out of that judgment. But it's still our choice. So that judgment is still alive and active and real for those who do not repent. Okay. Turn that back on. I'm going to pick back up with verse 5 because we're halfway through it. We're halfway, we're halfway through the uh, sentence. Because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each person according to his deeds, to those who, by perseverance in doing good, seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first, and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. So to the Jew first, he's got the covenant with, with the Jews, but it's not just the Jews. The Greek is a metonymy. You guys know that word? It's a, a figure of speech, the part stands for the whole. So um, um, if you talk about the West, you can say, well, 
the U.S. does this. Well, the U.S. isn't the only country in the West, but because it's the biggest, the, the strongest, frequently people in the East refer to the U.S. as the whole. Okay, so that's that's the dynamic going on here. Now, a question for you: Is anybody bothered by what we just read? Is there anything that sounds a little off about this? Does that bother you? No. That was a question. Is anybody bothered by it? Okay. So your answer is no. You're not bothered by it. Well, the fact that there's no partiality out there in the Jesus' person is treating anybody. Okay. But that's not what I was fishing for. So throw that hook back in and see if somebody bites. Who do good. Okay? 
And the ones who do good, when he, when he talks about the particulars of it, are the things that you practice when you have repented. So all you have to do is go back about a paragraph. It's the very same context. The entire gospel is predicated on the reality that your sin and mine will be forgiven if. And I'm sorry, I don't like if any more than anybody else does, but there is an if. What's the if? Global terms. What? No, we'll be forgiven. So what's the if for that? Because we're already on the do not repent train, see? So how do you get off that train? If you repent. Peter says to those who say, what can we do? These are the very people who cried out to Pilate for his blood. Seven weeks later. They clearly believed already. So we're not discounting the generic uh, import of faith. What shall we do? What was Peter's answer? Acts 2.38. Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So the first step there is exactly what Paul's talking about. You've got to change your mind. You've got to turn away from those things. Now, there's a second explanation, and it actually goes hand in glove with the first. It's part of the first. And it has to do, for uh, those of you, those two of you, who uh, were in the Greek class last year, with some things that we learned. What is the significance of present tense? Anybody remember? It is ongoing. We've learned very poorly, unfortunately, in American schools. Present tense means now. Wrong. Never has been true. It's not true in English and it's not true in other languages. Present tense means continual. Because now, well, the now that I said a minute ago was a minute ago. And now it's still now. So there's a line, see, that continues. So it's what's called linear. It continues. Aorist means a point. The verbs here, does evil, does good, are present. And they're the, they're the same, in fact, in one case even, um, well, almost exactly the same in terms of tense and the, the Greek ending as Matthew 7.21, where Jesus says, not everyone who calls me Lord, Lord, is going to enter the kingdom of heaven or inherit the kingdom of heaven. But only those who practice, now that's how we translate it, but it says, do the will of the Father. Okay? Again, Jesus isn't teaching works righteousness. There's another principle, by the way, the, the whole interprets the part and the clear interprets the unclear. Paul says very clearly, you're not righteous, period. That ain't going to work. No one can earn salvation. No one can earn grace and forgiveness. So that isn't what it is. We know that because that's been said. So we have to look somewhere else. So somewhere else is the tense. A literal translation of this would be those who practice evil and those who practice good. When you repent, you turn from a lifestyle of practicing evil. Now, for some of us, that's really, really, really evil. But that's a human description. Because we stratify, stratify evil, right? Can you think of people you think are more evil than other people? Right? But in terms of salvation, that's wiped out. 
There's evil, and there's not. Period. So you're either practicing evil, and there's some that have gotten really good at evil. And then you repent, and you start practicing good. Some have gotten really good at that. And we erroneously think they're more spiritual and better than other people. No. They just practice more. They've, they've, they've gone further in the development of those things that God is doing in us. But in terms of their standing before God, there's Jesus and there's everyone else. Right? So this is not saying, we've got to be very careful to understand this. This is not saying for a second that by doing good, you're going to earn salvation. Because the reality is, you can't do that good. You know, we're talking about being absolute, and Jesus himself said, there is no absolute good, except the Father. And Jesus was not denying, by the way, that he himself is good. He was simply pointing out that, by that standard, the Pharisees were in a box. <laughs> because they accepted that, but then they, they called him good. But then they denied he was from the Father. Okay. We're not good. In human terms, some of us are liked more than others. That's what we call being good, because we do things other people like. But we're not good. There is no human who's good. There are, however, humans who are practicing good. And there are humans who are practicing evil. When you are forgiven, when you repent, and you have the Holy Spirit, you practice good. If you've ever read 1 John, by the way, and I'm going to say this and then we're going to move on. 1 John is full of this kind of statement. Over and over it says things that, uh, you know, really upsets a lot of people. Things like you say uh, you walk in the light, but you continue to sin. You're a liar. You say you love God, but you hate your brother. You're a liar. And, I mean, he's just in their face because by that time, there are a lot of people who were, who were claiming to be Christian, and yet they had not repented. They were not practicing good. And he basically said, you're in darkness. You're in trouble. So you've got to understand the language, and the, the tense here is enormously important. All right. Any questions on that? We all good with that? You all thrilled with it? Okay. Verse 12. For all have sinned without the law, excuse me, all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. Okay? And yes, once again, we've got the tense there. Now, um, who exactly are without the law? Who hasn't heard, and that means the Jew. Okay? Um, would, you, would you guys mind pulling a few other chairs here, because we're getting a back row, and I don't want a back row. Not a back-back row, anyway. So y'all come on in here. Whenever you guys are here, I want to fill up the front chairs, frankly, because I don't like talking empty chairs. But beyond that, feel free to grab chairs and set up more. So, once again, Paul's putting his arms around the Jews and putting his arms around the Gentiles and pulling them together. Because theologically, that's 
the point. They are they are together. So, one way or the other, you're not going to be justified. When Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, then these, not having the law, are a law to themselves. And that, that they show that the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts, ultimately accusing or else defending them. On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. So, that's, that last statement is made pretty obviously to the Jews to help them understand what's going on with the Gentiles. Because remember, the Jews at this time, many of them still saw Christianity as a Jewish sect, as a teaching within Judaism, and there was still a lot of confusion about how is it that these Gentiles are part of this. Today, we, we're, we make the opposite, excuse me, the opposite error. Most Christians, and, and most Jews, see Christianity and Judaism as mutually exclusive. It's absolutely wrong. 100% wrong. How many of you are aware that the chairman of our elders is a Jew? Okay? That makes it pretty much not exclusive, I think. In the beginning, they were all Jews. But because, primarily, they let the Gentiles in, because the gospel always was inclusive of non-Jews, the Jews, who had a rabid nationalism, and it's understandable sociologically, but still, they rebelled against the gospel. And by about ten years after this letter, there was a conclave of rabbis, probably not the right word for rabbis, but there was a meeting of rabbis in Jerusalem from all over the Mediterranean world. And in that meeting, they agreed, not unanimously, but overwhelmingly, that you cannot be Christian and Jewish. So any person who accepted that Christ was the Messiah, was to be put out of the synagogue. And the word went out, and this began to be practiced by the mid-60s everywhere in the Mediterranean world. That's an amazing thing, because that's within decades of this faith growing out of Judaism. Don't they have a funeral for those who are Jewish and well, it depends on the they, if you're talking today. Today, saying Jew is almost like saying non-Jew. For example, in Israel, um, it is a Jewish state. If you're, if you're Jewish, genetically, from any country in the world, you're immediately uh, um, eligible to naturalize as an Israeli citizen. And yet... I've seen different studies, but I've seen some studies that put a majority of them as atheists. So they have no faith at all. It's, to them, it's all genetic. Then there's liberal Jews. Then there's reformed Jews. Then there's conservative Jews. Then there's orthodox Jews. Then there's Hasidim, which is like super, super, super right wing. And those on the, on the further right wings are the ones that would be doing something like what you're talking about. The rest of them don't really care any more than liberal Christians care because they don't really believe anything anyway. And unfortunately, there's a lot of people who, who go by labels but still don't really believe anything. Right? It's unfortunately pretty common. Okay. 
speaking of Ephesus verse 17. But if you know the name Jew, and you rely upon the law, and boast in God, and know his will, and approve the things that are essential being instructed out of the law, and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of the truth, stop for a second, take a break, take a breath. Do you, do you hear, am I reading it with enough irony? This is sarcasm. <laughs> he's, he's, he's building up. You think you're all that. Now why is that supreme irony? Let's remind ourselves of something here. Who wrote this? The former Pharisee of Pharisees, according to him. This is the guy who was, uh, you know, to use modern terms, about as right-wing a Pharisee as you could possibly get. He was the one they entrusted with orders that had to have been endorsed by, by uh, Pilate to travel to non-Jewish territory and find Jewish Christians, arrest them, put them in chains, and forcibly bring them back for trial in Jerusalem. That's how right-wing he was. And all of these things he just said are exactly how he described himself, how he would have seen himself then. So, you therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You got all of this stuff. What about yourself? What about you? You who preach that one shall not steal. Do you steal? Uh, what's implied in that question? What's the answer implied in the question? Yes. You do steal. Okay. You who say you should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? What's the answer implied? Of course you do. That's why I'm saying it. You who abhor idols, this is the one I like. Because he doesn't say, do you bow down to idols? Of course they didn't do that. You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? The idol is a place of worship, right? They don't believe it's really an idol or a, a god. But what do they do? Apparently, they were literally robbing the temples, stealing from the temples. Okay. Yeah, and and in a place like Rome, there are thousands of them. Literally, thousands and thousands. By the way, even even such uh, obvious necessities as meat. Almost all of that came from a temple. Because if you're going to butcher uh, a cow, why in the world would you waste the opportunity when you can butcher it, offering it to uh, a god, and get the blessing of the god? Okay? So most of the butcher shops were extensions of temples, taking the animals that had been butchered and, and offering, offered in sacrifice and then selling them in the markets. So it, it was ubiquitous. It was everywhere. And apparently, yeah, they were doing that too. You who boast in the law, through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. Um, 
In other words, yeah, the Gentiles hate us. The Gentiles hate Yahweh. The Gentiles speak badly of Yahweh. And you get all upset about it. But the reality is it's your fault. Look at how you're living. You're the ones who's supposed to know the teaching of Yahweh. The law of Yahweh. You're the ones who say you live the way he taught you to live. And look at what you're doing. No wonder people talk about us that way. Okay. Now, Paul, Paul all of a sudden has let the cork out. And he's just unloading on these people who used to be him. It's an amazing change. I mean, that, that, that used to be is probably anywhere from 15 to 20 years. It's not like, you know, yesterday, but still. He knows what these people are about because he was one. He was one of their leaders. And he doesn't pull any punches. For indeed, circumcision is of value if you practice the law. But if you're a transgressor of the law, then your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Uh, what, what circumcision? Medically, it's removal of foreskin and the penis. That's not what I'm asking. What is circumcision in terms of Judaism? Okay, it is the sign of the covenant. So if you're male... And you're, and you're circumcised. Number one, by the way, almost nobody else did that. Today, in the United States, circumcision is normative whether you're Jewish or not. So, all of a sudden, that doesn't work. But then, it was a very physical sign. And nobody else did that. So it was a physical mark on the body that says, I am part of the covenant. I belong to Yahweh. And it was proclaimed, if you will, as necessary to actually become a Christian by many people. The original people within the synagogues who hated Paul were not saying, no, the Gentiles have no part of this. They were saying, no, the Gentiles have to become Jews first. Because remember, our concept of Judaism as genetic is our concept you look back in the very genealogy of Jesus, it's got all sorts of Canaanites, Moabites, other people in his background. These are people that, that the people of Israel were told not only not to marry, but to kill. So why is it okay that they're in Jesus' genealogy? Any answer? But why does he accept them? You're right. But no, no, because he created their brothers who were still Canaanites and told everybody to kill them because of their faith. Because they said, we accept God. And as a sign of that, they became Jews. You see, again, Jew was not genetic. It wasn't about genetics. So anybody could become a Jew. All they had to do was accept the law, which, by the way, meant if you're an adult male, submit to circumcision. I have a strong suspicion that's a lot easier at eight days than, say, 38 years. I did experience the eight-day one. Don't remember it for some reason. Um, pretty sure I don't want to know the 38-year part. So they had to go through that. If you were a female, you had to vow 
that you would accept the law and live by the law and that you would not marry if you were unmarried. If you're already married, it's too late. But that you would not marry a Gentile. But again, Gentile isn't genetic. We've got to get that out of our heads. Gentile means someone who doesn't believe. So if I'm a Canaanite, I've got a death sentence on me if Joshua and his horde are coming down the hill. But if I become, as a, as a number of people did, a Jew, if I say, no, God is obviously God, I want to follow him, then I'm not a, I'm not a Gentile anymore. I'm not a Canaanite anymore. I'm an Israelite. And nobody's trying to kill me. And I get to marry people who are Israelites. Okay? One of the most beautiful passages to me in the Gospels is the genealogy of Jesus. And you look back into some of the names and you see names like Ruth. Now there's a book of the Bible about this woman. She's a Gentile. Right? I'm all out of this. And you've got this other woman. What was that, that woman's name? Rahab? When you, does anybody name your daughter Rahab? No, of course not. But Rahab was considered a heroine, not without the E, with the E, in the culture of the Jews. Because she saved some of the Jewish spies. Okay? And she was then incorporated into the nation of Israel. And became, both of those women, part of the lineage of Jesus from the earthly side. Nobody had any problems with that. Nobody looked down on them. They were people to be looked up to. So, circumcision has become uncircumcision. In other words, it's as though you're not part of the covenant. Because the covenant isn't about the outward sign. It's about practicing the law. And you're not doing that. You have become a transgressor. You've decided you don't need to practice the law. So, if the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Now Paul's making the case. These guys, and, and they haven't been circumcised. They haven't gone through the proselyte process and formally become Jews. But in God's eyes, if they are faithfully trying to keep the law, they're trying in faith to follow God, then they're as good as the Jews and better than the ones who are not trying, who have the law, who have the clarity and the history of the law and have thrown it away. He who is physically uncircumcised if he keeps the law, will he not judge you who though having the letter of the law and circumcision are a transgressor of the law? By the way, this seems almost petty, almost a petty discussion to us. But you need to understand, this was an extraordinary mark of honor to a Jew. To be able to say, I am of the circumcision, you will not talk about me that way. It was, it was huge to the Jew. It marked him out as, as who he is, as who he belonged to. Paul is saying to him, it's meaningless. It's worthless if it's not accompanied by the faith that practices what God's telling them to do. Okay? It's not about these other people are just better at the law than you are. They're not. They don't even have the letter of the law. They don't even know the specifics. They just know the generalities. But their hearts 
are inclined towards God and trying to please God in faith. And yours aren't. So isn't his uncircumcision better than your circumcision? Now what's the average you going to say? Of course not. And that's the thing. That's why Paul is doing this, because he's trying to pull the Jews in who are part of the church. They're not the average Jew. And trying to pull the Gentiles in. And he's going to keep doing this throughout this letter to basically say it's not about Gentile. You're not great because you're a Gentile. It's not about Jew. You're not great because you're Jew. It's about Christ. And for us, faith in Christ. Okay. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. That, by the way, is something that an amazing number of Western pop theologians, theologians the last 200 years have totally forgot. Because we've built this theology up about Israel and the Jews, and particularly how that relates to eschatology and the final days. And we think that people who are Jews, not even by circumcision, just DNA, and a person who is a Jew by DNA in those days would not have been considered a Jew. You're not circumcised. You're not a Jew. I don't care what your DNA is. But we have read that in, and then we still think they're the chosen people. But Paul says, he's not a Jew who's one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. He is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit. By the way, my translation capitalizes that. Does yours do that? Okay. That's, that is a commentary, not a translation. We have to be honest about that. Because the uh, original documents, the, the earlier documents in the Greek, and certainly what Paul would have written in, there's no lowercase. There's just capitals. It's called uncial. It's all capitals. So whenever you see a capitalization, that's a translator saying, particularly with a word like this, I think it means this. And if it's capital S, Spirit, what's that mean? Holy Spirit. Yeah. As opposed to just Spirit, which can mean the Spirit of a man. It can mean the Spirit of the times. I mean, literally as broad a term as our English word, Spirit. So... They're, they're putting in an interpretation. I don't know that I totally disagree with it. I'm just pointing that out because I think on a study requires that. So, he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. And I think that's a reference to the solidarity that they found within uh, the Jewish community, and they would praise people for the circumcision, for the law, for the fact you're a Jew, even though they weren't living that way, they weren't practicing righteousness, they were ignoring the law. It was a nationalism. And Paul says, no, that's not what it's about. Okay, does anybody, I'm, I'm, I'm turning up the speed just a little bit. Are we all together on this? Everybody, are you understanding it? Do you have any concerns, any questions? Because this is not what is taught, in a, even today, in a lot of places, a lot of churches. We all there? Okay. Chapter 3. By the way, who put Chapter 3 in? 
actually predates the translators even. Um, well, at least these translators. This was about in the 17th century. Um, someone decided, you know how legal documents have lines and numbers on the lines? That's the idea here. If we number every you know, several paragraphs or whatever, it'll be easier to find passages. So someone came up with the idea of putting chapter designations in. They are not inspired. They are totally human. And for the first 15, 1,600 years of the church, they didn't exist. The verses, by the way, were another 100 years later. Okay. One exception to that, and that would be the book of Psalms. Every psalm is a chapter of itself, and it was written by a different author in a different, you know, not all at the same time and so forth. For, so what we call chapters in the book of Psalms truly were separate and not necessarily bearing the same number that we give them, but separate when they were written. Somebody have a hand over here? Yes, sir. No punctuation either. Yeah, all letters, block letters. Uh, it would start. It was left to right. That much is helpful because it, it actually was bordering countries that were influenced from the east and did um, right to left, including Israel. They did right to left, but it was left to right. There was nothing but letters. They didn't even, they get to the end of the page or the tablet, if it was clay, whatever it was they were writing on. And uh, it, it didn't matter where they ended. They weren't going to waste space. They didn't have that. So if they're in the middle of a word, and by the way, they didn't stop it with, with um, syllables either. It, it was just wherever they ran out of space, then they started over here, and they started again. There were no paragraph spaces, no sentence spaces, no punctuation, none of that. A little bit. Um, we talked about that in our Greek class, that um, when, you, when you grow up reading Uncial, and that's just all you do, it wasn't particularly difficult for them. For us, it creates some problems. And uh, there are a few places and if we run into one, and I don't believe we're going to, uh, I'll point them out. But there's a few places where it could make a difference in the translation. There are very few, and none of them, in the New Testament at least, have anything to do with salvation. So it's really kind of cool the way the Holy Spirit has, uh, has over 2,000 years preserved that because there's no other documents that have that kind of history. I mean, clearly, I mean, I just said a matter of faith. I believe it is the Holy Spirit preserving that, not just humans. Otherwise, what in the world are we doing here? You know? Okay. Chapter 3. Chapter 3 doesn't exist. Paul has just gotten through saying what he has said to them about inward, outward Jews, and his praise, not from men, but from God. Then what advantage, see, immediately he goes to this then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? If that's true, if, if uncircumcision with faith is better than circumcision without faith, and if the praise of the nation of Israel is not worth anything, then what, why am I a Jew? 
Paul says, great in every respect, first of all. They were entrusted with the oracles of God. So what then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? May it never be. Rather, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. So Paul's saying, look, here's the thing. God had a covenant. Forgive me, I can't turn it off. I'm on call. So just... Okay. I don't need to deal with that. Just got to check it. Um, being a Jew is not worthless. Paul cherished his heritage, even though he threw away the Phariseeism. To him, getting rid of the Phariseeism was what opened his eyes to understand the, the true privilege, if you will, of, of being Jewish of being part of that original covenant of Abraham. And here he specifically says, you know, it, it's first, first of all, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. Oracles, uh, we're not talking all of a sudden paganism. We're talking about the teachings, the concepts, the truths of God. How do we have them? How do we have what we're studying today? Where did that come from God to? For what Paul just said. Who did God give the law to? Moses. And Moses was who? A Jew. Tribe of Levi. Okay? So, they were honored with that. It was a responsibility. And it was a blessing that went with that responsibility. The problems that they had throughout history were not because of the law. The Old Testament teaches very, very clearly. It's the message of almost all the prophets. The problem is where you're not being faithful in that. In giving you that, we, God gave a responsibility. And you guys are ignoring it. And in fact, living opposite to it. So yeah, they had all sorts of problems. But not because of the covenant. It's because of, in essence, that in their lives, they rejected the covenant. But if our unrighteousness, and verse 5, if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath isn't unrighteous, is he? I'm speaking in human terms. In other words, I'm, I'm giving you what, what other men may say, the argument that, that people may put out. Our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God. So where does he get off punishing us? Think about it. If I'm unrighteous, and that demonstrates how righteous God is, by contrast. Did I not just glorify God? Did I not just point people to God? Isn't that a good thing? Okay. Paul's answer, may it never be, which by the way is an extremely mild wording. Um, there's a number of, of idiom in the Greek that their figures of speech, they don't come across quite as well. That is indeed a fairly literal rendering. But... There's a lot more intensity to Paul's answer than, may it never be. <laughs> Just, this isn't an academic exercise for Paul. Otherwise, how will God judge the world? But if through my lie, the truth of God abounded to his glory, why am I also still being judged as a sinner? So he goes back and, and poses this rhetorical question. Why not say, as we are slanderously reported 
and as some claim that we say, let's do evil that that good may come. Who says that about Paul? And can you understand why someone would say that about Paul? If you do evil, good's going to come. So do some more evil, so good can come. Go ahead and sin. It just gives God the, the ability to forgive you. Sin's no big deal. You get right down to it. There is no sin. Because God's love's going to cover that. So whatever you do, all it does is give God the opportunity to show His great love and forbearance of you. What do you think? Why is that wrong? Well, that's actually uh, very much what you're doing. But it sounds good to me. I mean, if I can justify myself, I'll justify myself. The only reason I don't is because, yeah, it doesn't work. Because I'm practicing evil. It never gets rid of the fact it's still sin. There's a price for sin, folks. You cannot get rid of that. You can't simply say, well, God's going to forgive. No. God put conditions on forgiveness. Don't ever believe anybody that says forgiveness is unconditional. That is total bull. There's some serious conditions on it. Starts with faith. It goes on to, to repentance. Show me anywhere in Scripture that says you'll be forgiven without repentance. I'll eat the page. I promise you right now. I may ask you to dip it in chocolate, but I'll eat it. It's not there. Of course there's conditions. Which means, by the way, that if you don't do that, you're not forgiven. And this is the difference between the new church and America today. And by the way, probably 75% of the people who say they're Christian in America. I find in the West, it's probably not just America, it's certainly that way in Europe. We have exported this nonsense to places like Thailand. I've been to Thailand. I've seen the divisions in the church there that were caused by us. But not near as many of them are buying that nonsense as they are here. Paul says, no, that's totally wrong. And their condemnation is just. Paul's not buying this as a rational argument. He's saying this is in fact self-justification. This is, in fact, an attempt to say, I can be my own Lord. I can live however I want to live. There is no consequence for it. There is no judgment for it. So don't bother me. I can do what I want. You can do what you want. You want to be real careful about telling people they can live however they want to live. Because that very act, telling people that, is condemned in Scripture. Because you know better. They may not know better. They're listening to you. You who know the truth, just misused it to harm someone else. There is a greater judgment. Now, I'm not sure how much greater judgment can be than just judgment before God, but I don't want to find out either. This is serious stuff. Paul says their condemnation is just. By the way, think about a guy who says, if you sin and you repent and believe you have faith, God will forgive you. And now you're a Jew who's grown up hearing you have to toe the line, you have to do good, you have to rack up, if you will, points. It's kind of an economy. 
and do better than the amount of bad that you do. And I don't know how much better, but it's got to be better, okay? And you better hope it's better enough. And that's the only way God's going to accept you. And then somebody comes along and says, no. No, if you sin, God will forgive you. And if you sin again, God will forgive you again. If you truly are repentant, okay? You can see how somebody from a legalistic perspective hearing that can believe that's what Paul's teaching. It's twisted, but you can kind of get it. They're, they're saying you can sin and you're okay. Paul's not saying, no, you can sin and you're okay. He's saying, God forgives if you repent. And they sort of left that out. See? Okay. Verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? Who's the we? Jews. Remember, Paul is the Jew of Jews. So he's, you know, talking to the Jews now. He's pulling both the Gentiles in, pulling the Jews in. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. We've already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin, as it is written. And here's some of those famous passages. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together, they have become useless. There's none who does good. There's not even one. Their throat is an open grave. And with their tongues, they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. In the path, of peace, the path of peace, they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. The word fear, by the way, um, is not just a terror. Um, uh, um, uh, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to use, uh, define it without using the word fear or afraid. It's not just an anticipation of some very negative thing. It is also the word used for reverence, for, for not just respect, but respect above and beyond respect, for all those things. So the fear of God is not just I stand quaking because I'm afraid he's going to kill me. I have no fear that God's going to kill me. If he did, I deserve it. So what? I know he's forgiven me. So I'm not worried about him killing me. My fear of God is standing before God and being so awed, so utterly blown out of my mind that this is the creator of all things. That I, I, I preached a sermon on this oh, good night, almost a year and a half ago, before I went in the hospital, that you know, you've heard this song, I Can Only Imagine. I love this song. Okay, not putting the song down. Love this song. But the premise of the song is nonsense in my mind. Because it approaches standing before God from our perspective right now. When we stand before God, our perspective right now doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> it's gone. We're standing before God. I don't have to imagine what I'm going to do. I know what I'm going to do. I am going to burrow my face into the dirt. <laughs> Just stay there. Out of utter total awe that this is who this is. Now, I fully believe, by the way, that the Lord's going to reach down, pick me up, dust me off, say, don't do that. And I'll probably do it again, just instinctively. I don't know how many times he's going to have to do that before I stand up, but that's, that's reverence. That's the fear. It's not a negative thing at all. Because it's not 
he's mean, he's mad, he's going he's gonna to hurt me. I don't believe that in the least. It's just, this is God. And, and I don't know that, I think we've lost that, that understanding. There's no fear, there's no reverence, there's no respect, there's no awe of God before their eyes. That's what's happened to these people. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Did you catch what Paul just said? It's not the law that brings justification. Because no one keeps the law. What the law does is bring a total awareness of sin. It simply codifies what we probably instinctively know, and that is, I'm not that great a guy. So now I know chapter and verse of why I'm not that great a guy. I can prove it, because the law says do this and this and this. By the way, what does the, what does the law say? When he keeps talking about the law and practicing the law, what's he talking about? Because I think we have a skewed view of that. Anybody know what the law says? Or, or part of the law? Go ahead, a part of the law. This is not okay. There's a ten commandments. Not a trick question, guys. So you're all sitting back going, "I know what he's doing. He's setting me up." No, I'll tell you when I'm setting you up. I set you up. I admit it, but I'll tell you. Okay, so not setting you up. Ten commandments. Not a part of the law. I mean, the law is several books long, and this is just a summation of. Of a, of, I want to say the biggest laws because I'm not sure that's really accurate but a summary of some of the biggest laws and then we because it's ten that's the bottom line ten's easy to remember <laughs> so we tended to make a big deal out of those ten so, so and, and they're, they're pretty much universal they're not all in every aspect universal without knowing what they say does everybody agree with that? and yes I'm setting you up Thou shalt not murder. Is that universal? Yes. yes. Okay. It doesn't say thou shalt not kill, by the way. It says murder. That's the word. Um, you can make a case for whether a given killing is murder or not, but God's the one that ultimately is going to decide that. Um, you will not commit adultery. Is that universal? Should be. Should be? Should be? I'm going to go for is it or ain't it. How many is? Is? Okay. So here we are, thousands of years later, and no, don't commit adultery. You're still responsible for that. It is what's called a moral law. You will always keep the Sabbath. Universal? Uh-oh. Yeah, I happen to think it is, by the way. I told you I was setting you up. Now, what does keep the Sabbath mean? If you look at what Jesus taught about it, it is not the same as what the Pharisees taught. See, what we think, we, t- we tend to think about what the Pharisees taught. Jesus says there is not one little jot or tittle, that's like dotting the I, crossing the T, that's going to go away from the law. I did not get it, come here to, to wipe it out. I came here to fulfill it. And Jesus maintained the Sabbath. Now, Jesus did not maintain it the way the Pharisees thought he should. We need the Sabbath. 
When you don't keep the Sabbath, you are self-destructing. It was given for us. Jesus said that. Man wasn't created for the Sabbath. Sabbath was created for the man. So, we need that. And that's universal. If you choose not to do that, if you choose to go full bore seven days a week, then you're going to do that for a while, and sooner or later, you're going to crash. Okay? I'm not even talking about eternal judgment. I'm just saying you're going to crash. And when you crash, you're going to bring other people down with you. It's not good. Okay? Now, so the Ten Commandments are the law. What else is the law? What else do we know about the law? What, what, are, what are the things that, when the Pharisees said, you've got to do these things, what are they? So is that the first five books? Well, they call the first five books the law. It's actually presented in two and a half of them. But I'm talking about what's in the two and a half, the specifics of the law. So, yeah, you're, you're, it's, when you read the law and the prophets, yeah, he's talking about the Pentateuch, which is the first five books, but some of those are simply historical. Genesis doesn't have the law per se. It just gives us history. Ah, see, I was fishing, and I was wondering what fish I was going to catch. One of the things, for example, is all of the sacrifice, the whole sacrificial system. It's mandated by law. Why is it that people wail at the wailing wall? Yeah. Now, by the way, it depends on who the people are. Because the ones who don't believe in God still go there and wail. Because it's representative of the oppression and devastation of the Jewish people over centuries and millennia. Because it's the only thing left. It's the only thing the Romans left standing when they destroyed it in AD 80. But when you see a Hasidim, and that's when you see the pictures, I've never been there. I didn't count people and see how many are really this way. When you see the Hasidim, these are the guys with the curly things coming down, which, by the way, is one of the laws. You won't cut that. It was considered idolatry to cut it. Okay? And by the way, if you're really down on people with tattoos, for the same reason, the very next sentence is the one that talks about the tattoos. So don't condemn the tattoos if you've got clean sideburns. Because you're doing the same thing according to the law. The law was all of those things. You can't do those things. Because it mandated that all of those sacrifices be done in the tabernacle and then the temple. And there is none. So there is no sacrifice for the Hasidim, for the Orthodox Jew. Because they have to have the temple, and there is no temple. There's no sacrifice for their sin. They're stuck. They're lost. If you believe that, you'd be standing there wailing too. Okay. But, someone, you, what did you say the law is? You shall love the Lord your God. You shall love and love your neighbor as yourself. Even the Pharisees quoted that. That's the beginning of the parable of the prodigal son. No, uh, the Good Samaritan. Because, you know, Jesus said, you're right, that's it. The guy goes, oh, but who's my neighbor? Who am I supposed to love? So Jesus goes, okay, we're playing that game, are we? And then he tells the story. Okay. So when the Pharisees talk about keeping the law, the problem is they totally missed the most important parts of the law. That they said are the most important parts. When, when they ask Jesus what's the most important, Jesus says, what, what does your teaching say? And the Pharisee quoted that, or I think it was the scribe. He quoted that. They agreed. They didn't live it. 
The law hasn't changed. But loving God above all else and loving your neighbor as yourself sums up the law according to Jesus. Why then can Paul say, even the Gentiles, no, without having it written? Because inherently, or instinctively, we know this. Okay. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. What happens is, you know what you're supposed to do and that you're not doing it. That's what the law does for you. The knowledge of sin. Can you each right now think of some way you have broken not just the Mosaic law, but even God's eternal law of loving God above all others and loving your neighbor as yourself. See, I'm going to go out on a limb and say there's probably no one in this room who cannot right now think of an instance where they have not done that. We all know. And so we know sin. And we know we're sinners. Because the law has told us to do that. And we read it and we say, uh-oh. The Gentiles didn't have a law. They knew it instinctively. They didn't know about the, the sacrifice in Jerusalem and that stuff. They knew the rest of it. But the Jews knew. <laughs> so they're both condemned by the law. Yes, sir? I have no idea. Wouldn't surprise, I actually wouldn't surprise me if there's more than that, but that seems kind of white. Yeah, part of it might depend on whether you lump some of them together, like the sacrificial laws. How many laws are there? There's, you know, you can you can group the laws of sacrifice and like, but if you look at every single instruction or every single command, I have a feeling it's more than that. Well, there's no question, but I would disagree with him. I would disagree with him for only this reason, because the Gentiles didn't have those things. And yet they also are judged by what they know to be the law. They didn't know that to be the law. So let's come back to just those two big things that Jesus himself said sum up the law and the prophets. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. We haven't done those two. Just those two simple things. I don't know one human being who can say, I have done that perfectly. I've never transgressed that law. I certainly wouldn't claim that. So even without all the other 600 and however many more, yeah, just give me the two. I've blown it. So have you. And that's the point that he's trying to make here. So to all of you guys who are, who are Jews, yeah, you know all of those things. Yeah, you, you've born lots of those. You Gentiles, you've got the big ones. You know the big ones just by nature itself. You've born them. So where does that leave us? There's none who's righteous. There is none who has done good. And that's what, and by the way, he's quoting from the prophets throughout that whole thing. This is not new. This is what's been taught for centuries. He's simply bringing it down. Which, by the way, is also what Jesus did. If you look at Jesus' teaching, almost none of it. I'm not sure I know of any of it that's original. Jesus taught Scripture. And all of these, what, what we see as revolutionary things, 
He's quoting the Old Testament. <laughs> Revolutionary. We have misinterpreted. We have taken this and ignored that. The Pharisees absolutely ignored love the Lord your God. I mean, they, by the way, recited it three times a day publicly. This is the irony of that. That's why this guy even knew that. It was at the beginning of what's called the Shema. And the, the three prayers that they would publicly recite every day began quoting that passage out of Deuteronomy 6. And they still ignored it. Because <laughs> that's what we do. Welcome to the human race. Um, I've got only half a dozen more left of the Romans 3.21 to 4.25. Some of you got that a few weeks ago and have been working on it. But if you don't have it, I do have these six. And one thing I did not do, and I apologize, because I actually have it right here ready to do, is the sign-in. So if I do not have your name and the email address you want things sent to, then please do this. Sign in for me and give me that email address. I send electronic copies of all of these things to you. Um, if you've already done that and you're on the list and you've been getting the study guides, you don't need to do that tonight because I've got it. But otherwise, it's, it's right here. I'll just put it up here. Uh, I'll pass these around. If you just send them down. If you don't have the one for next week, which starts at 321, goes through Chapter 4, take a copy. If we run out, let me know, and I'll get you another one. And then we're done. So we are meeting next week. And what we just did is catch up to ourselves. We're one week behind plus the week of the, the missed week from last week. So I will put a schedule, a revised schedule together and bring it to you next week for the rest. And then we'll see if we can keep that. Okay? Have a good night. And now I'm turning this off. So you guys who are listening, don't listen anymore because there ain't nothing else here. <laughs>